We are back in the 13 Realms, and in this episode, we have a special treat in actor Jeremy Crawford, known for his performances on stage and on screen, but fantasy fans will recognize him as the leader of the dwarves in The Witcher, the Netflix series. We speak about his background as an actor, his involvement in the Kingdom of Dwarves, and also what it means for humanity to be seen. But first, we have to continue the legend of the Kingdom of Dwarves with a dwarf that's running a little late to the war. Malgrog Ironheart woke to the sound of a horn blowing in the distance. He grunted, rolled over in his bed, and pulled a scratchy woolen blanket over his head. This muffled the sound, but the horrible horn blower seemed determined to torment him and continued blasting away. Bugger off! Maugrog growled, curling up into a ball and squeezing his eyes tightly shut. But it was no good. He was now awake. Bastard! Maugrog cursed through gritted teeth. Horn-blowing bastard! The last thing Maugrog wanted was to be conscious. Consciousness meant that the pounding headache he usually didn't feel until sunrise had a chance to assault him now, in the middle of the night. Consciousness meant he could feel how full his bladder was, a knowledge that carried with it an onerous obligation to actually do something about it. Above all, consciousness meant memories. And memories were less welcome than plague rats in Malgrog's ramshackle excuse for a shack. The furious dwarf took out his frustration on the blankets, kicking the unsuspecting covering off himself in a sudden fit of wild violence. Bastard! Bloody, bloody bastard! He set his large, hairy feet upon the wooden floor and stood up. He waited patiently for the room to finish its annoying habit of spinning crazily whenever he stood. Then he shuffled forward, feeling his way in the darkness like a blind dwarf. Malgrog's headache had leaped at the chance to kick in early and was already bashing merrily away at the inside of his eyeballs with little war hammers. Luckily, his kitchen bench was almost completely covered with restorative fluids in large glass bottles. After knocking a few of these over and hurling an empty one into the corner of his shack, he finally came across a full bottle. There you are, he said affectionately, before he raised the bottle to his lips and drank. The ale was warm, stale, and flat, but Malgrog chugged it down like a starving calf at its mother's teat. When the bottle had been drained, he placed it on the bench, belched enormously, and struck out for the front door. All he needed to do now was take a piss, kill that horn-blowing bastard, and go back to sleep again. 
he emerged into his front yard and navigated his way by moonlight through waist-high weeds and piles of rubbish to his favorite pissing corner. It was as Malgrog stood there, groaning with relief and looking up at the stars, that a very troubling thought began to push its way through the half-drunk, half-asleep cloudiness of his mind. That horn. That stupid, annoying horn. It wasn't just some arsehole dwarf trumpeting away for a laugh. Those were warning blasts coming from Longdale's watchtower. You utter bastards! Malgrog swore up at the stars and whatever half-witted gods had created them. I'm not going. He finished his business, tied up the drawstring on his baggy night pants, and stomped determinedly towards his front door. He even managed to wrap his fingers around the handle before he turned and squinted back towards the town. From his front yard, on the absolute outskirts of Longdale, Malgrog could see nothing out of the ordinary. But, now that he was really focusing, he could faintly hear some other noises. The unmistakable clang of swords falling upon shields resonated in the far distance. Shouts of fury and pain winded their way to his fleshy ears on the night breeze. And high-pitched screams of terror cut through it all. Malgrog opened his front door and stepped into his shack. He was all too familiar with the sounds that were coming from the center of Longdale, and wasn't in any particular hurry to reacquaint himself with the sights that generally accompanied them. He stumbled back to the kitchen bench and groped around for another bottle of ale. When he came across a full one, he found that his hands were shaking so badly he could barely raise the damn thing to his mouth. Malgrog stubbornly persevered, and managed to spill only half the contents down his chin and into his wild grey beard as he drank. The horn continued to blow. Bollocks! Mogrog threw the empty bottle against a wall. The shouts and screams were growing louder. Here he fucking balls of the ancient ones! Malgrog turned and stormed back out into his front yard. Halfway to the gap in the fence, where his gate used to be, he stopped dead. He swiveled on the spot, returned to his shack to retrieve his axe, remembered that he sold it several weeks ago to pay for beer, and stormed back outside again. The skyline above the city of Longdale was now flushed with a faint red glow. Malgrog knew this sure as shit wasn't the beginnings of a lovely sunrise. The city lay to the west of him. Nope, that was fire. A lot of fire. Perfect! Malgrog exclaimed to no one at all. Right, bloody perfect! The inebriated dwarf set off down the narrow dirt path, which led to a slightly wider path, which led to the outermost houses and streets of Longdale. He cursed as he walked, cursed and wheezed. He hadn't marched this briskly since leaving the army, and his fitness levels were worse than those of a pregnant sow. His talent for cursing, however, was still prolific. Grog! 
A husky whisper from Malgrog's right interrupted a particularly creative string of vulgarity. Who's that? He hissed back. It's me, Hemig. Hemig, go inside, Malgrog said, squinting at the single lantern, which was bobbing its way towards him from the front of the old dwarven woman's house. There's some kind of trouble happening in town. Oh, is there, Grog? Hemig's raspy voice was coated thickly with sarcasm. And here was me, thinking the watchtower horn and all that screaming was nothing to worry about. All right, fine, you've heard it, said Grog. So what are you doing out here? What are you doing is more the question, Hemig said as she held the lantern up to his face. Grog recoiled from the blinding light. Thandur's tits, woman! Put that thing down! Hemig lowered the lantern to her side. It threw a flickering combination of light and shadow on her wrinkled old face. So, where are you going? Well, I'm... Grog trailed off, gesturing weakly down the road. I'm going to help. The darkness didn't hide how vigorously Hemig's eyes rolled beneath her bushy brows. Help! She scoffed. You're drunk off your head, you fat fool. You were at the goblin's head from open until close to day. So were you, Grog protested. Aye, but I'm not lunching down the street in nothing but a pair of grotty underpants, trying to be a hero. Grog looked down, but was unable to confirm or deny the state of his undergarments, because his prodigious and admittedly naked, stomach got in the way. And how do you plan on helping? Himig continued. I'm not a great ex-general like you, but I the sound of steel on steel if I'm not mistaken. What were you planning on fighting with? Your bad breath? The ridiculousness of Grog's semi-naked, unarmed stroll into town crystallized into embarrassment, which was further exaggerated when he looked around and saw that a few other dwarves had emerged from their houses to observe Emig telling them off. At least eight dwarves were now standing in their doorways, with candles or lanterns in their hands, and terrified expressions on their faces. The watchtower horn, which had been blaring away the entire time, suddenly died mid-blast. Hope flared in Grog's chest, that this signaled the end of the mysterious disturbance. But that hope was snuffed out almost instantly as the sounds of battle rushed in to fill the sonic void, seeming suddenly to grow louder and closer. We need to go! Himig shouted to the gathering crowd of dwarves. Come on, Grog, you ale-soaked sausage! Let's make for the woods! You mean, run away? Grog asked. Of course, run away, Himmig said. Let me grab some things and we'll go. No! The anger in Grog's shout clearly startled Himmig, but it startled Grog even more. I mean, I can't, but you should. Himmig sighed and gave Grog a slow nod. I understand. Just wait here a moment, then. 
She turned and tottered back towards her house. I need to give you something, she said over her shoulder. Grog waited, trying to avoid the stares of curious children standing in doorways, while the silhouettes of their parents could be seen through candlelit windows, frantically grabbing meager possessions. Here! Hemig came bustling back down the garden path. She had her lantern in one hand, a large battle axe in the other, and a steel helm perched atop her head. These belonged to Medavig. I've kept them all these years. She passed over the axe, almost reluctantly. Vin squished the helm down over Grog's mass of wild black hair, pressing the nose guard painfully against the bridge of his nose. Thanks, Hemig. Grog muttered. I'll take good care of them. Aye, you'd better, Hemig said. And while you're at it, you can take good care of yourself too, you silly fat bastard. She gave him an affectionate pat on the stomach, then headed back to her house. With nothing left to do but continue on up the street, looking and feeling utterly absurd, and headed straight into the guts of some sort of horrible, violent trouble. Grog gripped the battle axe with both hands and did just that. We are back in the 13 realms and with a very, very special guest. We have Jeremy Crawford, actor extraordinaire, both on the stage and on screen. Jeremy, it's such an honor to bring you on to the 13 realms podcast. Thanks for being here. Uh, Chris, the honor's all online. I'm excited to be here and I appreciate you having me. Absolutely. So we got to go to the very beginning. How did you get into acting? Because I'm not sure a lot of people know this. They might know you from The Witcher, but you have an extensive experience on stage. So how did all the acting stuff start for you? Well, I grew up in a small town in West Virginia called New Martinsville. And, you know, it's a community of about no more than 5,000 people. And so you always try to find a creative outlet in some way, shape or form, because there's not a whole lot to do. And uh, I got into the theater in the high school and uh, was really inspired by it. I really enjoyed getting to be in somebody else's skin and being a part of a world and creating this world and and uh, getting to to just share moments and create moments for the audience and with the other actors. And I just kind of fell in love with doing that. And so I did that all through high school, ended up uh, getting a, a small scholarship in college. So I went to a university called Fairmont State University, which is about an hour and a half from where I grew up. And uh, did drama there, uh, ended up getting a, a, a degree in theater education. Um, so I did that uh, for a while there, taught for a few years afterwards, did a lot of radio presenting for about four or five years, and uh, just kind of missed being around drama and theater and, and acting in general, and uh, knew that I needed to, to be around it again. And because I, I came from a small town in West Virginia, I didn't have a lot of self-confidence with my ability. And uh, the fact that I am a short-statured actor, 
Now, you're, you're not presented with a whole lot of opportunities. And so I wanted to take advantage of, of training to be like, I am in the best possible situation so that I can succeed. And so I started applying for graduate schools and I got in accepted to a few programs, but I chose to go to a program in Glasgow, Scotland called the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland, then called the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama. And uh, it was there that I, I really kind of found my voice, my identity. I kind of grew up doing musical theater, playing the sidekick best friend in Disney musicals kind of thing. And, uh, you know, it, it's a lot of fun. And I knew I had more to, to bring and to offer, though. And uh, my professors and my undergraduate saw that in me and encouraged me to apply to graduate school and to, to get more training to set myself up to succeed because being a small statured actor, you know, you're not getting those opportunities. So you want all the tools that you can. And that drama school in uh, Scotland, the Royal Conservatoire, just set me up for so much success because they saw something in me that I didn't see. And, uh, you know, I went from playing sidekick best friends to doing Shakespeare villains and, and right. playing kings. And, and I got to play King Lear. I got to play Leontes in a, in a staging of The Winter's Tale at Shakespeare's Globe for a bit. And, uh, you know, had a lot of amazing opportunities. And I grew as an actor and as a person because I got to experience those that I never had a chance to before because of my height and because of where I came from. So it was very exciting. And I took that and ran with it. I started auditioning for a few things, lived in Scotland, in the UK for a few years after that. And, uh, you know, worked professionally as an actor there. My visa ran out, so I moved back to the States. And it wasn't until I, I booked a play. It was the pre-Broadway run of a show called The Heart of Robin Hood. And it's uh, flipping the story a little bit on its head where Marion's the main character. Um, little John is actually played by a little actor. So I was Little John. So we thought it would be a very interesting concept to have the, the, the biggest, strongest guy be the smallest person on stage. But it's his right. presence. It's his vocal presence. It's his, the way he carries himself that gives him that, that, that lore that you have about little John being so stoic and big and, and powerful. And we loved that aspect. So he was a very strong character, even though he was the smallest person on stage. I did a lot of aerial stunt tricks in that show. And, oh, uh, you know, it, it's what helped propel me forward because that was a pre-Broadway run of a show at the American Repertory Theater at Harvard. And, uh, the show didn't transfer over to, to Broadway right away. It went to, Canada, where we did another pre-Broadway run of the show. Uh, I met my, my wife doing the show, actually, uh, in Canada. Cool. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's very cool. And uh, <laughs> um, we were set to transfer over, but um, the theater that we were set to be in was one of the biggest Broadway houses. And uh, things happened behind, behind doors that we don't know about. And so the show didn't continue on. Um, but that experience of getting to play that character to, you know, play around with axes and knives and, and swords and whips and all that kind of stuff uh, just set me up for the trajectory of where I wanted my myself to be and to go as an actor. Yeah. You know, we have to talk a little bit about the difference between acting for stage and acting for screen because I love stage shows, but one of the most daunting concepts that I try to wrap my my brain around is that these actors are doing multiple acts per night like of the same act over and over and over again and they'll do it forever how do you how is acting for stage different from acting on screen what are the biggest takeaways that you've had so far in your career well the uh, it's a very good question the 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 
biggest thing that is a difference uh, between the two is is the development of it. Like when you are preparing for a character, whether it's in TV and film or whether it's on stage, you're going to do the exact same thing. You're going to do your research. You're going to go over your lines. You're going to um, kind of talk about it with with other actors and kind of figure things out. But when it comes to the, the performing aspect, the luxuries that you get for theater don't really exist in TV and film, at least not very often. Um, so you don't get that chance to rehearse because when you do a play, you rehearse for several weeks. You, you get to know the actors like very personally. You understand and create those relationships and you start to find the nuances of stories by getting to, to play around with it in a rehearsal room. And then you get to perform it on stage in front of, you know, 1500 people. And that's when you really start to understand the story. You, you find out where the funny moments are, where the dramatic mm -hmm. moments are, how, how to, you know, tweak it a little bit. So you say you get to do it, you know, over and over again, but that's, that's a luxury because right. you find out okay. how to, to better craft a character and how to better tell that story. So if you messed it up one night, you get another shot, you know, during the <laughs> evening performance or tomorrow. So it's, it's, it's a lot of fun to have that. But when you're doing television and film, you don't always get a chance to rehearse. Sometimes for big projects, they'll, they'll spend a couple of weeks having characters and actors bond and, and, and discussing the nuances of characters. But that's a luxury that you usually don't got because, you know, time is money. And so they want to try to push everything forward. Actors are one of the last things that are thought about when you're doing a television and film show because you, you have to get the lighting set up. You have to get the, the directors and, and uh, you have to have the sets built. Everything's there. You could be ready to go, but you're the last thing that is thought of because they'll spend three hours setting up a shot. Let's say it's outside and they have a window of about an hour before the sun sets. You right. better do your job. So you got to become in fully prepared and ready to go at the drop of a hat. Whereas in, in stage, that's not the case. You get to rehearse and work that up. So it's, it's the preparation for the characters are the same, but it's, it's the delivering of it is different. And the different kinds of pressure from performing in front of 1500 people, which can sometimes be daunting sure. to performing for just a crew. Um, but you have, you have to hit your marks and you have to hit your moments because they have another shot happening or we're going to go in overtime and, and that's going to cause the production company to get mad and, and so there's different kinds of pressure, um, but the creating of the characters are essentially the same. Yeah. So let, let's let's dive into that, because, I mean, you bring up so many good points about characters and you got to hit the timing just right. And we were speaking about bringing little John to life in a very big way with your stature. But when we look at Yarpin Zigrin, right, he is on stage like he's a, a stage stealer, it seems like a scene stealer, if you will, because when when he's there and he's like interacting with somebody all eyes are on him tell us a little bit about how that opportunity came about what went into the development of that character and what was it like on screen yeah absolutely um well the opportunity came about because i have a, a big desire to be a part of the fantasy world i grew up like i said in a small town in west virginia and i remember at being about eight or nine years old and every time i went to my grandmother and grandfather's house we would watch the same two movies back to back um and it would be dark crystal and then um rankin and bass's the hobbit movie which is a cartoon yeah. animation film and i was in awe of both of those i got freaked out a little bit by dark crystal when i was a kid because the puppets <laughs> looked a little too real 
Um, yeah, they did. <laughs> but uh, Valley. <laughs> absolutely. But the yeah. the Rankin and Bass cartoon, um, you know, I never got to see actors that look like me on TV. You know, mm. you you get to experience those things a little bit differently when you can see yourself in those characters. And when I saw that that film of the cartoon, even though it was a cartoon, I went, look, that's a little guy who can kick some butt, who has just as much strength and power and courage as the, the larger guys. I'm like, I want to do that. I want to, if they ever make a live action film of the Lord of the Rings, I want to be in it. And yeah. obviously that, that has come and gone, uh, but the opportunity to get to do The Witcher happened. And uh, incredibly thankful to my wife because um, we always try to keep an ear out for fantasy stuff because I am a big fan of the fantasy genre. So I'm always reading fantasy novels. I, you know, I read the first two Witcher books before they even announced that they were doing a Witcher show. And um, when they did, um, my wife happened to find out um, who the casting director was uh, through social media. And she's like, you need to message the casting director. And I'm like, well, that's not something you typically do. You don't message the casting director <laughs> saying, I want to play a character. I want to be a part of the show. Mm -hmm. um, but she's like, but you're perfect for it. I'm like, well, I know that I'm perfect for it. Um, but you know, a lot of times you tend to, uh, have larger actors using different kind of force perspective or, or, or different technology to, to make them look smaller. And I thought, well, maybe that's the way they're going to go. I had no idea. And my wife was like, what's it going to hurt? And I said, all right. Yeah. So, um, the casting director is based out of London. We happen to have a holiday in the UK. So she's like, let her know that we're going to be on holiday and you can meet. And I was like, okay. And sure enough, five minutes after I sent that email, I got a response that was like, yeah, we'd love to see you. And I was like, what? Wow. That, that never happens. And I was completely shocked. And uh, uh, so on my holiday, I'm studying lines for my audition. I go in and it is one of my best auditions I've ever had. I had such a great time and uh, walked out going, well, if I don't get it, then at least I know that I, I did my best. And sure enough, they, I ended up booking the job and getting to bring that character to life is, is a feeling that I, I can't begin to describe because as I said, when I was a kid, I, I loved the fantasy genre and wanted to play like a, a, a warrior dwarf kind of character. And, yeah. and here I am getting to do that and being a fan of the books before I even had the audition was, uh, made made it so much sweeter to get to bring this character to life because i when i read the books and saw how funny these dwarves were and how different they are from like tolkien dwarves in the sense that that they're they're, they're a little more crude um they're a little right. more vulgar they they um they definitely carry a big stick um <laughs> in regards to the way they present themselves and i i loved it because that's the antithesis of who i am but that's the luxury yeah. of being an actor is that you get to explore these different kinds of characters and and be somebody who you're not um, for the sake of a story. And I I loved the story. I loved the characters and the richness of this world that Sapkowski created. And so I was so excited to be a part of it and to, to bring that character to life. And uh, yeah, no, it was it's an exciting opportunity. And that's kind of how I I got got blessed to, to be able to be a part of it. And I'm so thankful to Sophie Holland, who is the casting director on that show, because mm -hmm. she, from day one, I think, really wanted to you know use uh, little people actors, short stature actors to play the dwarves because it gave a sense of realness to the story. And right. um, I'm so thankful for that because it's giving actors who don't get a lot of opportunities 
uh, a chance to shine. And, and so it's, it, it, it definitely changed my, uh, my perspective on, on where I can fit in the industry. And it was just an exciting opportunity. Yeah. So shout out to that casting director. Cause I mean, that is such an incredible show. And I mean, when you really look at your performance, like I, I was watching your performance and I was trying to embody you for a second. I'm like, how do, how do I bring that intensity to a scene? Because it, it almost seems like you would have a headache. If you had to do take after take after take of some of those scenes, you'd have an, a headache from the intensity that that character has. Like, where do you pull from for, for some of that, that intensity, that anger that the Yarpin has? Well, it, you know, you say it's, it's anger and it, and it is, but what, what you don't necessarily see that jumps off the page right away is what's behind that. Um, right. like people are like, oh, Yarpin's an angry man. I'm like, he is, but it's justifiably angry. He's not just angry. Like I said, I read the books, uh, played the games. And so I know the background, I know the lore, and I know this character in this world. And I knew where I wanted to, to take it. And that aggression comes from the fact that he comes from a race that that gets treated quite differently. Um, you look at the Witcher in the first episode of, of the season of season one, and, you know, he's ha had the rocks thrown at him, spat on, been treated poorly. And Yarpin and his men know exactly what that's like. When we first meet Yarpin mm. in season one, he's in a bar, he's in a pub. And, um, you know, they're introducing the people who are going to be on the dragon hunt. And I right. jump on top of a bar and I'm screaming at the barman. And, you know, initially you're like, wow, he's kind of angry. But he's angry right. because if you, you watch what's happening in the background, nobody's serving them. The, the bartender's overlooking them. Um, they're trying to get a drink. And they're like, nope, not serving your kind here. And uh, mm. it, it's, it's frustrating as a, a person of short stature um, because I've been in those situations where you're at a bar and you can't get the bartender's uh, attention. And sometimes the mm. bar is even higher than you are. Uh, and so right. there's, there's a lot of frustration that's built up. And Yarpin is the type of person who is very proud of, of being a part of the dwarven race and mm. you know, sees that they are just as strong, just as fast, if not stronger or faster or tougher than, than the humans in that world or any other kind of the race. Um, and you know, getting to embody that and bring that to the screen was very important for me because it showed that the, the, you know, the little guy can be just as strong and tough and, and, and courageous. And so that anger that, that jumping on top of the bar or screaming came from a place of, you know, wanting to, you know, the fact that you have to shout to be heard. Um, the fact that, right. you know, sometimes just saying something, they're not going to listen to you. So right. I'm going to make them listen to me. And, uh, you know, that's where I kind of saw Yarpin is being somebody not that he's just yelling or, or being mad is that he's being passionate because he right. believes in his people and he wants to be treated equally and he wants everybody to kind of get along. And you don't really think of that on face value when you just see Yarpin and, and he's like very dismissive and he swears a lot. Um, you don't see that, that passion and that heart, but that's where it comes from. And so getting to do that over and over again, vocally can get tiring, um, sure. but uh, emotionally, the well is always there because, you know, being an actor of short stature, you know, that's, that's part of my life. And I'm able to bring that um, to the screen a little bit. And it's very exciting because, you know, you don't get angry uh, in your day-to-day -day life um, for things that you can't control in that way. But yeah. um, getting to, to vent that on screen and getting to show that side 
it's very therapeutic in ways. I believe it because when you, when you talk about what you're talking about, being seen, that's a very human thing that I think a lot of people don't even think about. It comes up very subconsciously when you look at things like social media, you look at things like media, people just want to be seen. They want to be loved. They want to be understood. And I mean, that's exactly what you hit on because you were talking about representation when you were little. You're like, you, I want to see people like me up on the screen doing the things that other actors are doing. And you were able to live that out. What does it mean for you to be able to look up on the screen and know that you're representing other people out there that, that want to see what's possible in, in whatever population that they're a part of? I mean, any up, underrepresented population you can think of, just seeing someone else that's also underrepresented up on screen, what did that mean for you to be able to say like, hey, I can be an example for others out there? Uh, it, it means the world to me. Um, because that wasn't something I got to experience. You know, there were occasional actors growing up that that would be on screen that were uh, little people actors or short stature actors, but but that was very very few and far between. And if you did see them, they would be in specific kind of genres of, of film or TV. Right. Um, and uh, I was so excited to to be able to to share that and to be able to be on screen and knowing that that's going to be there. And the first time I got uh, a piece of a fan mail, a letter from this guy who was an uncle and his um, uh, son has a form or his nephew has a form of dwarfism and said it meant so much to see somebody um, who's little on screen, who can be strong, who can be tough. I was able to show that to him. He's like, I didn't turn the volume on because you were swearing the whole time, um, but I was able to show him that. Like, look, right. he's, he's able to be, you know, right there, right beside um, right beside Superman. In a way, and so uh, it was very exciting, and it, I got a little choked up when I read that message because that was something that I wanted so much when I was a kid, and get to be able to have um, kids now have that experience um, to see somebody that is like them up there is is pretty pretty special. That is incredible. I'm sure there have been a, a few times in your career where going through the process of acting has changed you in an appreciable way, like just changed you just the way you operate, whether it's in your career or even in life. Is there a moment or a story that, that really stands out in your mind that made a huge impact in who you are as a person? Yeah, that's, I think that's a really good question. I think there are moments on stage that you have where you truly get lost in the character. And I don't mean in the, the method acting sort of way, but you're, you're totally in the moment where you and the actors on stage are essentially uh, in sync. You, you know exactly what the other person is thinking. You are embodying that character. The world is real to you in that moment. And I've had a few specific moments like that on stage and on, on, on you know, TV and film where you have those moments. And it's, it's very much like if you're a golfer or a baseball fan, if you you know, hit the hit the bat on the ball or hit the golf ball um, on the head of the club right in the sweet spot. And it just soars. And right. it's it, what makes you come back each time is that feeling in your hands in the club or, or on the bat when you connect with the ball. And it's just perfect. It's just right. And uh, there was a moment when I, I played King Lear in um, Glasgow. Um, uh, my character picks up Cordelia and and she's dead and he falls on the ground and he's weeping for his daughter and he just dies of a broken heart and being in that moment uh and and living that experience was something that i never thought i could could experience being a smaller actor 
um, playing a, a character like King Lear, that experience in general was was rewarding. But that moment, I remember um, just kind of collapsing and and the the tears were real. The the emotion was real. Um, the person that that played Cordelia, who I was holding, was one of my closest friends from from the um, program that I was in. And, uh, you know, everything just kind of clicked. And it's those kind of moments that that just kind of fuel you as an actor. I mean, you, you always try to, to bring that authenticity to the to the stage or the screen. But it's truly special when those specific moments just kind of happen and kind of click and you're just zeroed in on them. Um, so I think yeah. those are those moments that kind of change you and it makes you appreciate the, the human experience um, that we all have. Outstanding, Jeremy. That's awesome. We'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about Kingdom of Dwarves. Uh, obviously, there are some things that are under wraps, secret, secret, back office or uh, back tavern type of conversations that are going on. But uh, tell us about how that connection was made. Uh, did, did Evan reach out to you? How did that all come to be? Yeah, Evan did reach out to me. Um, we have a mutual friend. His name's Andrew Diefenbach. Uh, he's an animator. So him and Evan know, uh, know each other. They've worked together on a project. And, uh, you know, my name came up because I think they were talking about The Witcher. And uh, he's like, oh, that's amazing. I'd love to, to have a chat with him. He's like, well, I can send you his email. So Evan reached out to me and uh, it's like, hey, this is a project that I'm doing and that I'm a part of. Just wanted to see if you're interested in talking about it and, and seeing what your thoughts are. And immediately I, my jaw dropped because of the, the art that are in these, these, these NFTs is absolutely gorgeous. These people are amazing at what they do. And I was like, that's fantastic. Um, but it's more than just an NFT. Uh, as soon as I saw that, I'm like, well, there's a Discord. So I went to the Discord <laughs> and checked that out. And in like, wait a second, it's not just a Discord. There's like an RPG element to it as well. People doing role-playing games to it. I'm like, that's incredible. And then it's more than that. There's the lore that's behind it and the story that they are creating. And I'm like, this is amazing. And it just <laughs> keeps topping itself and topping itself. And then there's that desire to, to do something with it, either with television or film. And, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, that was incredible because you take all those things together, the Discord, the NFT, the, the RPG, the, the TV and film stuff. I'm like, this is a unique experience. It's, it's a sense of community that I never saw before. I'm like, I want to be a part of that because I haven't experienced any of that kind of stuff before. And to have it all wrapped in in the same thing was something I'm passionate about, which is the fantasy genre and yep. the fact that it deals with dwarves, which obviously I'm I'm very very close to, um, was right. very exciting for me. And I was so chuffed that Evan asked me to to even take a look at it. So yeah, you know, there are things that we're, Evan and I are talking about with uh, you know Kingdom of Dwarves, and I'm just excited to to see where it goes and and happy and thrilled to jump in wherever I can because I'm you know just excited to be a part of the project because it's incredible and very, very unique. It is. And I have to be honest, I might be a little biased, but it has absolutely ruined me from other projects, other communities, because I, I've been in the discord since day one and I've seen it evolve and change. I went ahead and, and for those of you that uh, are listening to this, you won't be able to see it, but in the background, there's a, a king back there that uh, I'm one of the yes. 13 kings of, of the KOD. And that, that even comes with its own uh, respect in itself. Like just saying, yeah, I'm a king in KOD. And it, it's so incredible. And everyone celebrates it. We all pile into the tavern for KOD. And we do like gifts of drinks and, and, and beer and ale, whatever you want to call it. 
And I mean, it really is like a, a community. I do consider a lot of the people that I talk to on a day-to-day basis in the Discord as friends. I pop on, we all chat, we talk about our day, we talk about work, we talk about our projects that we have coming up. And I mean, really just everything from the art, incredible. The story, even better. But really, it's the community that that is just even better. And so you're about to get introduced to the community in a big way. I cannot wait to see everyone's reaction to you and also see what you know you do for us because you bring such a different flavor to the community just from the the acting that you've done the impact that you've had for your community i mean really it's going to be something that's incredible for everybody yeah i'm, I'm really excited to be about a uh, part of the project and and just excited to see where it's going to go and to interact with everybody because like i said i've been on the discord uh, because we're not sure exactly how I'm going to be involved. I didn't want right. to just jump in right away. I got a couple dwarves um, in, in my stash. And so I, I Ooh, made one okay. of them my my avatar. And I'm, and I'm just excited to just jump in fully with everybody, um, either on the Discord, through social media, and whatever the case may be. I'm, I'm just thrilled to be a part of it. Outstanding. We've talked a lot about dwarves, but I feel like during this episode, we talked a lot about humanity, being a human being, being seen. Uh, when it comes to being seen, like a lot of people out there don't feel seen right now, whether they just do their job day to day, they're not seen by their manager, maybe they're not seen by some of their friends, the community, or even like their significant other, their, their significant other doesn't see them for who they are at their core. What piece of advice would you have for those folks that aren't being seen, that feel like they aren't being heard? What advice would you have for those people to make their lives just a little better? The fact that they're not alone, especially over the what the world has experienced in the past few years, you know, there is a lot of of depression and um, frustration and not feeling like you're able to get seen. And the fact that uh, sometimes people have been alone during the pandemic, which is, you know, kind of scary because you're just by yourself. You're not even having any kind of interaction with anybody else. So, you know, there is that that sense of not being seen and what can make that turn around even just a little bit is to know that you're not alone and and we're not you're not there are other people that are experiencing the exact same thing you are and you can find that sense of community in other places if it's not not you know in your hometown or in in your household even there are things like like um you know the discord you're talking about the the great hall or, or talking about them you know you know having you know fake drinks and and stuff on yeah. on on the uh through the discord and in the chats and everything I mean, that's a sense of community right there. You feel like you're actually friends because you are actually friends. You have that that deep and meaningful connection that you can make. Um, so you're you're not alone. And you know, the other thing I would say is is to reach out. Don't just stew in that. You know, find right. somebody there that you can you you want to talk to that you can have a connection with. You know, that that's the biggest thing is just to know that you're not alone and that there are other people out there like you and and seek them out and uh, find that connection. Outstanding. I couldn't have said it better myself, Jeremy. For the folks out there that want to stay up to date with you and all the incredible things that you have going on in your life, what are the best ways that people can do that? Um, well, I have a, a website, jeremy-crawford.net. Uh, you can find me on Instagram, Jeremy Crawford Actor, and on Twitter, underscore Jeremy Crawford. Um, yeah, so those are the places. You know, Shoot me uh, a message. Uh, you know, Follow me on, on social media. Let, let's talk about... Uh, you know the the nft world Let, let's talk about kingdom of dwarves you know i'm i'm so excited just to be a part of the community and uh, you know obviously you can tell i'm just bursting to to share everything and, and just jump in 
outstanding we'll drop all that into the show notes down below and also a link to the discord so you can hang out with us in the kingdom of dwarves and with that we'll see everyone next time